0: Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade, studying, researching, writing, and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. to another episode of the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. I'm your host Dr. Michael Weber. Uh Joining me today is an important guest, um, Cameron Hodgson. Uh, Cameron is um, currently uh, a, a senior associate uh, at the Centre for Strategic and uh, International uh, Studies. Uh, among many of his um, uh, affiliations and work, uh, Cameron has previously also uh, served as Chief of Staff for a uh, successive Presidential Special Envoy uh, uh, for Sudan uh, between the period 2009 and 2012. Uh, Cameron, I, I had um, a, a problem, you know, writing down all of the stuff you've done, they, they're quite long, list You have a very impressive resume. I'm pleased to, to have you join us today.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me to come on.
0: Okay, brilliant we uh, we we'll just go straight to it so um we've seen an an intensification in in you know in the fight in in Sudan between the two rival factions but before we come to that uh Sudan is like a very uh, special case it's, it's got a history of um uh conflict uh, you know long history of conflicts different kind of conflicts uh for for those uh listeners that are unfamiliar with this uh particular country can, can you just Give like a historical background of, of you know the conflict situations in in Sudan. Uh,
1: sure. Well, I mean, I think you know for for me, my my entry point into thinking about the conflicts in in Sudan um, is really sort of based on on Sudan's geography, right? Uh, and so the the, the current uh, shape uh, and size of Sudan is is actually rather new, um, right? Since Uh, In 2011, you had South Sudan separate. So I I think when you're asking the kind of historical question, it it, um, is worth remembering that South Sudan used to be an integral part of Sudan. And so when we think about uh, that history, uh, Sudan was uh, the largest country in Africa for most of its history. Um, It ordered, I think, nine countries for most of its history. Uh, So that's changed a little bit in the last uh, decade or so. But I think when you... When you go beyond just the the size of of the country uh you also have to think about uh where it sits on the african continent and 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 the the divisions in the country as part of a broader division within within africa the sort of meeting of the of the arab and the african world right and i think that that was is one of the things that makes uh sudan i think very unique very vibrant uh but also has has been at the at the uh at the root of a lot of its um, internal division, right, is that uh, that those uh, those those that diversity has not been a source of strength, I guess, would be a, a charitable way to uh, to say it. So you have um, you have a huge diversity of of tribe and of ethnicity and religion um, within within the country. And that has, um, you know, I think that has largely been at at the root of of a lot of the problems. Um, Traditionally, you've had a kind of uh, Arab ruling class. Uh, You know, if you look at if you look at uh, the map again of Sudan and you talk to to some of the kind of uh, elites in the country, um, you know, people are very quick uh, to to let you know that there are more you know uh, egyptian pyramids in sudan than there are in egypt right and that uh and that the uh in the time of the pharaohs sudan uh was really the 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 center point uh and the centerpiece of of early egyptian history and so so you have this um kind of chauvinism uh, among I think certain Arab elites in the country who view themselves as uh, descended from this sort of rich uh, Egyptian pharaoh history uh, and, and 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 you have seen them act towards uh, you know African tribes and minority tribes in the country um with this kind of chauvinism and uh, at heart. And I think um, that was obviously the most pronounced and 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 lasted the okay. longest with respect to um, uh, the conflict towards uh, the south of the country, what is now uh, South Sudan, That's right. True. And so that was a conflict uh, that in two separate incidents, uh, you know, took place over more than 20 years cost more than two million lives, uh, and was a really brutal, brutal war um, that was divided along uh, ethnic lines, tribal lines, regional lines, religious lines, um, Mm. you know, you name it. And and until obviously the independence of South Sudan or the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2005 and the subsequent independence of, 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 of South Sudan. And so uh, Sudan, however, I think knew very little uh, continuous peace, however, because in the, in the time that uh, in, in the late uh, 90s, early 2000s, when uh, there were serious regional and international efforts to try to resolve the conflict between North and South, uh, we saw in the early 2000s, uh, a new outbreak of violence in in the Darfur region, the far western region of the country. Um, you know, a lot of people have argued, <clears throat> I think somewhat convincingly that that Darfur is is much more of a Sahelian state having characteristics of 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 Chad and Niger, and also in terms of in terms of tribes, in terms of uh, uh, economy, in terms of uh, obviously climate. Um, you know, much more related to to those regions further to the west uh, than to the capital in Khartoum at all, right? And um, uh, so you saw this uprising in, in, in Darfur. Some Some would argue that 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 uprising was, in fact, Uh, Stoked by the impending peace deal that the Southerners were going to get um, and the Darfuris, who felt similarly marginalized, as I think all peripheral communities uh, in Sudan had felt at some point, uh, you know, thought that it was an opportune moment to uh to try to improve their situation internally um and 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 revolt in a, in an attempt to gain greater autonomy or or uh you know wealth sharing from from the government um, that obviously didn't uh go in the same way that it did for the south sudanese um and there was a a brutal brutal response by uh, the central government in khartoum i think primarily because they saw the writing on the wall which was if they made another peace deal like the one they made with south sudan then all of these peripheral areas of the country which had been you know marginalized considerably by the center uh since independence were all going to kind of rise up uh and and look for for their own autonomy and so they needed to dip that in the bud and they and they did it through this very very brutal. uh, what is now called a genocide uh, against uh, African tribes, mostly African tribes in, in the Darfur region. Um, mm. So that conflict never fully ended. It subsided and abated, but it never, you know, there's no peace agreement. There's no peace deal. There's no, uh, you know, document that was ever signed that ended it. There was certainly no um, accountability. There were no trials mm. held for the crimes that were committed. Um it sort, of, it sort of faded away a little bit, uh, uh, certainly from the public consciousness, even though the the effects for the Darfuris lingered on uh, considerably. Uh, but that led to the sort of 2018, 2019 popular uprising, which um, unlike previous uprisings did not necessarily uh, take place only in Khartoum. Actually, it didn't even start in Khartoum. Uh, it started in, in these more peripheral areas of the country Um, And I think there it was um, an uprising in response to, I think, decades of uh, mistreatment, decades of deprivation, uh, by the central, uh, state, uh, economics at the heart of it. But, but frankly, I think very difficult to separate out, uh, the, the economic deprivation from the, from the political and, and, and social and developmental deprivation. Um, and again, this kind of chauvinism or racism that kind of, uh, you know, was an, was an undercurrent, uh, to all of Sudanese, uh, politics for, for generations. So um, that very, I think, promising and hopeful uh, popular uprising by the people uh, in 2018, 2019 led to the security services essentially jettisoning, jettisoning uh, President Omar al-Bashir, who came into power in 1989 in an Islamist coup, uh, essentially removing him from power, not because they were siding with the uh, the popular uprising or with the people, but I think they did it as a means of saving themselves and to saving the regime that they were a part of. Um, and so, uh, so you saw Bashir's removal in, in April of 2019. Um, that did not quiet the protesters down. The protesters wanted Mm. just a change of leadership. They wanted a true change of regime, which was to say uh, a change of the kind of military Islamist regime that Bashir had constructed over his more than two decades um, in power. And the security services were clearly not willing uh, to do that. And so you saw a period of uh, where the international community once again intervened, forced a kind of um, uh, uh, power sharing deal between uh, mm-hmm. civilian <laughs> leaders uh, and the security services. That power sharing deal lasted for about two years uh, before it broke down, and the military and the security services. Um, you know, stepped forward with a coup, removing the uh, transitional prime minister, Abdallah Hamdak, and the the two uh, military arms or security arms of the state, the Rapid Support Forces, a a militia group created by the army uh, to fight the war Mm -hmm. in, in Darfur, and then of course the Sudan Armed Forces, the, the traditional uh, army in the country. Uh, essentially those two leaders ruling with some uh, discomfort between them until in April of last year, 2023, uh, you saw the tension between those two leaders, you know, break out into the open and and unleash this uh, this really brutal, uh, what is now, I guess, a civil war, which uh, mm these two with these two generals that is, you know, left Sudan uh, in this kind of renewed state of conflict. Um, although I would say this conflict has uh, no similarity to any previous conflict uh, that the country has ever experienced. Uh, the fact that it uh, has started and centered around the capital Khartoum, the most populous mm. country or most popular uh, city in the in the country, uh is a is a um, substantially changed uh dynamic i think for most of the country's history uh even though there has been violence and instability most of that mm-hmm. the majority of that has been far from the capital far from the mm-hmm. eyes of the capital uh population um <laughs> it was something that i think many in the capital business elites political elites could largely ignore the international community didn't mm-hmm. know ignore it but uh but but uh elites in the country were able to largely ignore um these tensions and 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 uh and violence that was going on in the peripheral areas that's obviously not the case here uh the conflict started in khartoum and has since radiated out uh to virtually all portions of the country save for some amount of the country in the north and some amount in the east uh but other than that, most of the country has been touched in some way directly uh, by this conflict. Now,
0: hmm, amazing, amazing. Uh, what I'm getting from from your very you know comprehensive responses to some extent that there seems to be a continuation from the past because you did say uh, those conflict never ended; they were never resolved. There was there was no justice. There was no there was no accountability. But it looks like it's gone from the, the, the problem has magnified to the point where it's gone beyond that now to, to something else where we're seeing conflicts uh not in other periphery but at the center so what what is what is responsible for this shift where we're seeing concentration of you know forces and fights in the center what has what has changed
1: well i think what's changed in, in some respects is the is the belligerence i think for the Listen, I mean, the, the South Sudanese, when they held their long civil war, they um, they were never in, in that conflict ever able to uh, inflict the kind of harm on the country that we have seen the rapid support forces do. They, you know, as much as they were able to uh, hold on in a long civil war and survive, uh, that North South civil war by and large took place, uh, not in Sudan, but in South Sudan, right? It was, uh, you know, besieged cities, uh, of, of South Sudan, which for decades suffered. Uh, but the, the, um, the population in the, in Khartoum and, and, and frankly, all northern uh, cities uh, were untouched by that by that long war because the uh, SPLA, the the Sudanese uh, you know breakaway uh, regime, it never had the power to project its its force uh, beyond its own borders, and so it was um, you know it could push back within its borders, but it was never able to really strike at the heart of 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 uh, the north. Um, that's, that's very much not the case in this, in this current conflict. Um, I think Mm -hmm. what we have seen is the, um, Sudan army also over this time really atrophy. I think it has, I think it is fair to say that, Mm -hmm. um, the kind of rot and corruption of state institutions, um, has, Mm -hmm. uh, has you know, plagued the Sudan army, just as it's pl- plagued other institutions in the country. And so now that it has mm. faced, is facing this uh, this really formidable threat, um, it is, it is, you know, seeing uh, just how weak an institution it is and mm. just how much in the course of the last, I would say, 10 or 20 years, the army has not actually done a lot of its own fighting, even in, in the South Sudan conflict, um, the army created uh, local militia groups, Islamist militia groups in South Sudan. They were called the Popular Defense Forces. Hmm. Do it's kind of fighting for it. So the army over time developed uh, a kind of strength around uh, its air force and relied very heavily on its air force and to some extent uh, artillery. Um, But Hmm. the army... You know lost a lot of its ability to be mobile lost a lot of its ability to uh, be agile and so you Mm -hmm. see even in the conflict with south sudan these kind of garrison cities that the army is able to maintain a base a garrison base and launch artillery Mm -hmm. or launch uh you know long range uh bombing missions um to to weaken the enemy that is not working with the rapid support forces the rapid support forces Mm. were a militia known previously as the janjaweed again created by the military to carry out this kind of scorched earth campaign in darfur because it was not something that the the sudan armed forces was equipped to do it didn't have the mobility it didn't have the equipment it didn't have the training um to to commit that that kind of uh you know to those kind of tactics on the battlefield and so now uh i think in a kind of you know turn of of irony uh you have this uh this creation this monster that the SAF has created using its Uh, advantages, its tactical advantages against the military now. And we have Mm -hmm. seen that in the past 10 months, um, the military has really struggled uh, to counter the, the mobility of the rapid support forces. And it is, we're seeing it, 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 not able to use its strengths of defending garrisons and using air support uh, to uh, to be able to overwhelm the enemy. It's the same tactics that they've used in South Sudan are no longer uh, as effective against the current uh, RSF threat.
0: Hmm. Is this in any way related to? I think I've seen. I don't know if this is kind of related to similar tactics by military strongmen, even in other countries where we've seen where. Some have argued that these military strongmen, like uh, you know Omar bashar, they, they they deliberately weaken the military capability by you know empowering and creating this militia or this private um uh, private police or military police to to, to protect regime security. Is that, is that a similar is that something uh similar? did, did it create these monsters that then uh, become a threat to, to the regime itself?
1: Well, I think that the the way it's often uh, viewed in Sudan is the Bashir government, as it as it um, lost its ideological underpinning within the kind of Islamist movement, as it became mm-hmm. kind of more and more uh, corrupt, both uh, ideologically corrupt and financially corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, it relied more and more on internal security forces to maintain uh, its hold on power. And Bashir, I think, was rightly uh, paranoid of uh, of the potential for a coup that would unseat him. Obviously, a guy who comes to power through a coup should probably also be worried about uh, being ejected from power uh, from a coup. And so um, he took a number of steps in his later years to, I think, um, you know, what what some would say would be to coup proof his his regime. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you saw um, not only a kind of hollowing out of the the army intentionally, but also Mm -hmm. the building up of things like uh, the National Intelligence uh, and Security Service, the kind of the intelligence arm of the of the country, which were given broad powers of arrest and detainment and search and seizure. Uh, and built up almost as a private army, you see similar um, building up of military intelligence, which was carved out uh, from the SAF as its own kind of freestanding unit. And then you see also uh, the formation of these kind of ad hoc uh, militia groups throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So the idea here was that he was not going to have one single uh, security force that was going to be so powerful that at the end of the day, it would be able to, uh, to overthrow him and um, overthrow or, or, or counter any of the other security forces. So it was always this idea of, of keeping these, uh, these various security forces uh, off balance, or maybe even in balance, so that none was uh, the hegemon within, within the country, and, and none could uh could single-handedly remove him from power so that, that was the that was the idea um obviously the the, the problem with that was that it, it created this you know this kind of multi-headed uh mm-hmm. beast that became very unwieldy very difficult to control um and you're seeing now um that without proper discipline y- you hollow out and diffuse power across uh, across these services. Uh, but when someone like a General Hemeti in the Rapid Support Forces is able to then you know, leverage, use his own leadership, use his own external relationships to transform the RSF, not into mm. just this kind of ragtag militia, but into mm. what is essentially uh, uh, the strength and size of a conventional army, um, mm. you, you run into this, you run into the problem that Sudan now faces, where you have essentially um, Two national armies fighting out over one country.
0: Hmm. There's been, you know, there's always been focus on the, the RSF and the Sudanese Armed Forces, but there are other actors like the this several militia groups that are aligned to each of these, if the forces? How 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 does that play into um, either prolonging or intensifying? You know, how, how does this militia groups? different rebel groups that align with either the government forces or the rsf how do they what is that dynamics can you explain the dynamics there well i think you know again
1: for the for the army because they don't have um a great deal of mobility built into uh how they've been you know they've been taught almost in a kind of very 20th century way of fighting right they use artillery they use tanks um, you know, uh, they have a, 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 a kind of modest air Force um, but they, you know, they they don't have the uh, the tactical wherewithal to really fight uh, an effective counterinsurgency. And whether it was the South Sudanese or the Darfuris before, those were uh, you know much more classical um, insurgency campaigns. And rather than building up the capacity to fight those forces themselves, they recruited uh, militias to do it for them. Right. And so um, so there have there is a long history of um, of militias being formed, I think largely it it comes from kind of uh, self-defense communities that have always been in existence within many of the uh, uh, certainly you know nomadic uh, tribes across across the region right and Mm -hmm. so uh, by organizing those groups and uh, you know giving them just modest instruction and and modest support um, they were able to kind of weaponize these groups what we're seeing now and of course, the RSF is learning to do the same. Even though it's a product of of having been formed, um, it is now going back into the, specifically into Darfur, but even beyond, we're seeing recruitment by the RSF from uh, from African tribes in in Niger, in Chad, mm. um, across mm. the Sahel, being drawn in largely for a paycheck, uh, but mm. but but appealing to those groups along along um tribal lines and so um and so what you're seeing is i think uh these 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 groups relying once again on uh tribally based militias uh there's one new component to the war that's i think really starting to emerge now and that is this idea of You know citizen self-defense we're starting to see it mostly in um in areas held by the government of sudan still the military of sudan um because you have seen the rsf going into uh places particularly in the south and the east of sudan um Mm -hmm. And really committing awful you know sort of human rights abuses and crimes Mm -hmm. uh in areas of the country that that have never experienced those kinds of crimes before um you're Mm -hmm. seeing the formation of self-defense groups not along necessarily Mm -hmm. tribal or ethnic lines but built around cities to defend those cities um you're also Mm -hmm. seeing the military as it has you know suffered in this war um doing nationwide um you know call-outs for recruitment, mm. so you're seeing uh, you're seeing average citizens again uh, join up for the military again. I would say that you know traditionally recruits to at least the officer class of the military have always been among a kind of elite Arab class, mostly mm. from 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 the north of the country, and the kind of mm. uh, infantry class uh, were often kind of ethnic minorities from the peripheral areas um hmm. and so now you're seeing uh you're seeing a much more kind of broad-based uh recruitment uh, of forces to join the army now um so you're seeing citizen involvement in a way in their own defense and in defense hmm. of the state uh, in a way that we we haven't seen before in previous conflicts
0: hmm. that, that is quite that is quite bleak but but I I wanted want to focus on um some external involvement in this and the role they play so i think where to start with is to look at them um, uh we can look at the regional level but i want to start from the external uh, from international level let's say wagner Group, for instance the russian group there's been uh it's where the have been providing support to to the rs uh, rsf forces and and, and you know they've, they've had uh different groups maybe iran providing support to the sudanistan forces uh, how much do they what how do they what is the role of this external support in in terms of the conflict what what is the driving force behind this this support for, for each of these groups
1: sure so i think the external support um has been mo- much more significant on the rsf side than it has been on the on the saf side mm. um i think that the rsf um by the nature of general Hemeti himself general Hemeti, mm. um you know is worth recalling he really transformed this janjaweed militia into uh into this uh, rsf mm-hmm. army you know he used the kind of the down period after the the fighting in darfur sort of subsided as i was talking about in the early 2010s mm-hmm. um to mm-hmm. turn the rsf into true militia force and so he developed external ties uh, across the gulf across north africa he uh, was hired uh, in libya hired in yemen developed his own kind of uh, relationships with external backers uh during that period of time bashir was happy to have him do it because it allowed him to not worry about the rsf uh you know they were outside the country fighting other people's wars Um, Mm. And I think that was probably, uh, you know, a near term strategy without without a good look at what the long term consequence was. The long term Mm. consequences is is that the RSF became very powerful, became very wealthy, became Mm. uh, highly um, uh, skilled uh, at this kind of warfare that it's practicing now, and developed Mm. its own network of foreign backers that it has been able to call on, whether it's the Libyans, uh, or the Emiratis, uh, or other, um, you know, militia groups located in Chad and in central African Republic. So it has mm-hmm. used all of those connections, uh, mostly for, uh, arming itself and resupplying mm-hmm. itself. Um, but again, as I mentioned before, it's also used some of those tribal ties for recruitment, uh, from militia groups outside the country, whether that's in central African Republic, Chad, Niger, um, it has, you know, it has uh, recruited uh, very heavily from outside of uh, Sudan. So I think that's, I think, one way that the that the RSF and you mentioned uh, the Wagner group, the Wagner group was was in Sudan uh, even prior to the to the war breaking out. Um, they had provided some, I think, security assistance, uh, mostly on a, on a technical level and um, uh, but clearly, uh, they have taken on a more uh, strategic role for the RSF. We know, for example, um, that they have facilitated the sale of uh, shoulder-fired missiles um, that mm-hmm. have been brought from uh, Wagner stockpiles in Central African Republic, bringing them into to Sudan for the RSF um, to use. Um, we don't know fully what the nature of the uh, – of any rsf operatives are uh any Mm. soldiers are um Mm. they're reported to be fewer than 100 of them in the country um Mm. my suspicion is that that Wagner is much more focused on maintaining the gold shipments out of the country Mm. which um Mm. which it has been um which it has been exploiting with the rsf Uh, For a number of years now, and I suspect that that's that's really its primary focus, given the stresses on Russia, uh, you know, financially and other areas. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to know exactly what the full uh, operational nature of the relationship is, but they're certainly Mm -hmm. there, um, and we know that they have played a key role in, for example, the weapons trade. On the on the SAF side, it's 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 kind of interesting that um, you haven't seen nearly as much um external support to the SAF. um you know uh people talk about the egyptians providing support and i think early on in the conflict um they they provided some light air support uh but that has not been sustained in any kind of you know significant way i think egypt is suffering economically right now it was going through an election at the time Um, its economy is in dire straits. It doesn't have the money to fight another war. Most of its debt Mm. is owned by the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Mm. and we know that the UAE has put pressure on Egypt not to become involved, uh, militarily Mm. in the conflict in Sudan. So you're not, you know, even though people say, oh, well, the Egyptians are, are backing the SAF," they might be backing them from a moral perspective, but I don't Mm. think that they're very much from an operational perspective yes, mm. people say the same thing about the saudis but again I, I i think the same holds true that the saudis they may they may have a slight preference for the SAF. i don't know um mm. but there's no evidence on the ground that they are providing uh any kind of sizable uh support to them uh, i think where the SAF has you know drawn some attention in recent weeks is their outreach to iran um and again i think that uh, clearly there's been an arms deal signed uh, with the Iranians, I think, around drones, but could also be around uh, ammunition and and other light weapons. Uh, Mm. But but the fact is, I think that the way, certainly the way I read the outreach to Iran is, you know, sort of proving my earlier point, which is because they're not getting any other uh, external support, Mm. they have few options left if they want uh access to you know more advanced weaponry than to go Mm. to Iran I don't think that Iran was their first choice uh Mm. to go to um you know given the given the kind of international um concern that that would generate but I think it's just a function of the fact that they're not getting sizable support from any other outside sources that they had no other choice but to go to Iran
0: Hmm. How do you see this playing out? Because we've seen where, like you've rightly pointed out, the, the, the Sudanese armed forces have you know suffered you know some some you know setback. So how do you see, and then we've also seen attempts at like you know, peace deals, you know, peace talks and you know, MET and 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 Fattah coming together face to face at one point, but you know, there's been some upset. how do you see this playing out in the in the long run?
1: well that's that's a really hard uh question to answer um i think viewed from inside the conflict and the two leaders i don't think that despite what they say i don't think there's much interest in stopping the fighting i think that both sides are convinced and and have been convinced from day one that they are in an existential uh conflict and that they can't survive politically or even Uh, physically, uh, if the Mm -hmm. other side wins. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, despite, you know, then saying that they're open to talks or even going to Jeddah at one point and, and, and signing or committing to ceasefires, um, I don't think either side has any interest in a ceasefire. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean we won't get there eventually. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of the problem with that is that to get there, if if it's not going to be driven by the belligerents themselves, it has to be driven Mm -hmm. by the international community. And here I would say the international community has has completely failed uh, the people of Sudan in responding to this conflict. Um, You've seen a very half-hearted attempt uh, between Washington and Riyadh to try to convene some initial talks. Uh, Those did not go particularly well or particularly Mm -hmm. far. Um, The AU, the African Union, and the regional group EGAD have basically been kind of tripping over themselves uh, in, a, in, a, in an almost comical way, uh, but not really being able to contribute anything in terms of leverage over the parties. Um, mm. You have the the UN again, occasionally speaking out. There's a new UN uh, special representative uh, who's been appointed on Sudan uh, about a month or two ago, but again, no you know serious initiative from the UN mm. Security Council mm. has been basically mute on this conflict uh since the beginning and so Mm. uh you know if if there's not a demand internally for a ceasefire if there's not exhaustion from the parties uh Mm. in a ceasefire and if there's no kind of coordinated international effort to get us to a ceasefire or to Mm. uh you know some longer term political arrangement then i think at least in the sort of close to to medium term uh Mm my suspicion is that this fighting is going to, is going to drag on. So I think that's mm. the, um, you know, that's the unfortunate outlook for for the time being. Um, mm. You know, we will see something has to change though. Um, and I'm not sure what it is, if it's a change of, of battlefield control, if, if it's, if it's the, the, the SAF regaining or losing key portions of the country. Um, but I mm. think that the, um, the battlefield situation will Will do a lot to determine what the negotiating, you know, uh, yeah. you know
0: outlook is. Hmm. I'm happy you mentioned the 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 failure of international community. Is that can we relate that to, um, you know, the lack of? Currently, we look at the lack of moral, uh, that that moral vacuum you know, in terms of what international body has that neutrality or has that, you know, ability. We see. What's going on with maybe in Israel and look at, you know, we're seeing Israel, uh, Hamas, we see, you know, in in Ukraine. Do do you think some of these conflicts are capitalizing on that, on that, what I call maybe, for lack of what I say, maybe hypocrisy among some of the traditional international, uh, maybe in terms of democracy, maybe the United States, for instance, maybe, you know, does the embolden these? fighters or these groups in Africa to to then carry on and say, you know, we we don't have any strong international partner that is going to enforce um, such uh, ceasefire or such negotiation. Well, I don't know that it has emboldened uh,
1: the parties to this conflict. I think they would have been fighting anyway. Um, Mm. But I do think that the fact that you have seen uh, a retrenchment of uh, certainly the United States, which has been um for good or for bad, it has been the the, the, the principal uh diplomatic actor in Sudan for twenty mm. or thirty years yeah. now. The fact that mm. it's uh given up that role essentially, I think is a is a factor here. Um mm. Again, you know, even when when the the war in Darfur was going on 15 years ago, I I always remind people that, you know, as much as Washington was paying a lot of attention to that conflict, you know, Washington Mm. was also fighting a war in Iraq. It was fighting a war in Afghanistan. And so I I kind of um, reject this argument that there's too much other stuff going on in the world for the West to care, you know, because of Mm -hmm. Gaza or because of Ukraine. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. Those are those are big uh, conflicts that are taking up our attention. But the United States had 400000 American service members deployed in two different countries fighting a war in addition to a global war on terrorism. And we can we can Mm -hmm. we can argue whether that was good or bad or you know what the effect of that was but the fact Mm -hmm. is is that took up a lot of time and attention not just from washington's Mm -hmm. perspective but from the kind of the western alliances perspective who were also Mm -hmm. engaged in those conflicts with us and yet Mm -hmm. we were all able to dedicate time and attention and concern Mm -hmm. to the conflict in darfur and so Mm -hmm. the fact that we have i would say smaller conflicts going on today where there is absolutely no western service members deployed we don't have military who are dying on the front lines in in gaza or in ukraine mm. today right mm. um and yet we're using those as, as an excuse for why we can involved in in Sudan today. And I just I just don't think that that holds up right. I think that Mm. um, what you're seeing, however, is this retrenchment uh, from the West uh, since those wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. You've seen Washington Mm. uh, step back from the traditional role that it has tried to play. Europe is obviously, Mm. I think, only concerned about the potential for migration from from Mm. this conflict Mm. and not necessarily Mm. in in trying to solve it and you have seen in the same period of time you have seen uh, the rise of what we call the middle powers right the the yeah. the turkey, okay. turkey, yeah. turkey you yeah. know yeah. and you've also seen a resurgence of russia and china and so i think the fact yeah. of the matter is that uh whereas even just a decade ago Um, Washington or Brussels had a lot to do and say about how these conflicts were resolved, Um, Mm. there's now a huge competition and a huge choice that countries have in terms of Mm. building diplomatic alliances, right? And so you have seen uh, all of these other countries playing a role in the conflict in Sudan in a way that even a decade ago, they were completely absent.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I was was looking at, uh, if I look at uh, a more continental, uh, uh, what lessons, looking at the Sahel, looking at the uh, Niger, Burkina Faso and looking at Mali and looking at the popular uprising in these places and the anti-Western uh, narratives, anti-French narratives in those, in those. what lessons does that present to these places, the lessons uh, because you know we started off from 2018 and the popular uprising against uh, Bashar and then you know all of, what lessons does uh, the Sudan present to these uh, places in the Sahara where, where you currently have cool leaders in there?
1: Well that's a great uh that's a great question. That's a that's a hard question. I think Washington is mm-hmm. really grappling uh with this question of uh, as I was just saying about the rise of these middle powers and the rise mm-hmm. of um what i what maybe we should just be calling you know alternatives uh, to u s uh, peacemaking and 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 interventionism. Um, yeah. you know, what Washington is struggling with in in the Sahel right now is this notion Mm -hmm. that, okay, well, traditionally, if you have a coup, then we isolate you, we sanction you, we we punish you, Mm -hmm. right? Because we Mm -hmm. want to send a signal, uh, not just to those coup makers in that country, but to all mm. of the other potential coup makers across the region, that there are consequences mm. um, that you suffer when you uh, when you commit these unconstitutional acts. Right? That has been the traditional, um, you know, playbook, and we've seen that playbook in in uh, in Sudan. I mean, I think Sudan probably suffered the longest, most complete period of western sanction and isolation and and punishment under bashir right mm-hmm. uh, um and and i think people in washington now and 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 more broadly are asking well what did that get us what did the what did the 20 years of sanctions and isolation um what did it really get us what did it get mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the regime survived um it wasn't mm-hmm. overthrown because of our sanctions it was overthrown mm-hmm. because of uprising, we really punished Mm -hmm. those people for for 20 years in Sudan or more. Um, So what did that what did that regime of 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 sanctions and isolation really achieve? I think people are asking that question now uh, in the Sahel because these countries that that might face punishment for their coups, they now have Mm -hmm. alternatives. They can very quickly break their isolation through their relationships. With China, with Russia, with Turkey, uh, mm. with 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 a host of other countries who are more mm. than happy to fill the vacuum that is being left by uh, Washington or Brussels or London uh, withdrawing or Paris withdrawing from these uh, from these places. And so, wow. I think that Washington um, has to learn from all of these lessons and 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 really um, figure out a way that it can, you know. Be be true to the values that it continues to espouse—the values of democracy uh, mm. and constitutionalism. Um, how do you stay committed to those values, but at the same time uh, not abandon uh, these countries to uh, forces who who have you know no interest in in uh, democracy or prosperity, or even in the case mm. of Russia, stability mm. necessarily, mm. right? And so. Mm. Um, It has, I think, a a, a very difficult uh, balancing act that it's going to have to figure out uh, between Mm -hmm. how it pursues those those long stated values and how it reconciles that with its interests. Its interest in Mm -hmm. maintaining a presence, remaining in, you know, remaining uh, in dialogue and and keeping Mm -hmm. open the door uh, Mm -hmm. for being able to, uh, you know, guide these countries back to a place uh, where they are more stable, where they are more prosperous, um, and where, uh, you know, stability in the region is, is uh, you know, is regained.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll come to the last question. Right. And, and I think I've asked you the prospect of the of the fund, and we've seen in the short, medium term, it looks like it's going to continue, you know, until, until there's a kind of like maybe there's a field you know, a change in terms of like the, the combat, but then we've also talked about uh, the receding role that Washington and you know what the Water Western alliances are playing. But you did mention briefly Eager and, and the regional stuff, the AUN stuff. and stuff. And from what I've read, I, I think they've had a, a bit more sources when it comes to like trying to to resolve the situation compared to you know you know uh, Saudi Arabia and the and the US stuff. Do you think that is um? Uh, so I think there's a double question, in terms of the regional spillover, maybe we include Ethiopia in, in this now, because I've heard Ethiopia seems to have like a, maybe support towards uh, the Sudanese army, do you think, what is the implication in terms of like the spillover to the to the Horn of Africa? And then what prospect does EGAD and the AU have in you know, taking the lead in, in, in resolving these issues? I think we can stop on this on this on um, this note on this question.
1: Well, I think I think where we're going to see the spillover immediately, and where we're already seeing it, is in the refugee situation. Right, you're seeing mm-hmm. you know you've seen a, more than a million Sudanese have fled the country. Um, I think in this year you could see uh, some multiple of that number uh, continue, be- given the the humanitarian situation, given that. You know, nearly half the country is nearing a famine state right now in Sudan. Uh, their only alternative is going to be to flee. And um, a million people is a lot of people, but uh, it's spread over, you know, five or six countries, it's spread, you know, over all the neighboring states. If you were to see um, really a much larger exodus than that, I think you would you would necessarily see the region become much more involved because it all of a sudden it's going to affect them in in, in ways um, that it needs to protect against. So I mean, right now, the number, the largest number of refugees is in Chad, and they are in mm-hmm. a very remote area of Chad along the border, where there's traditionally always been a lot of refugees, and where the the humanitarian response is really, um, you know, really built in uh, to those mm-hmm. to those areas. So the 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 refugee outflow has not yet had uh, an enormous effect, but it could have an enormous effect on a country like South Sudan right, which Mm -hmm. is already highly fragile and unstable, it could have a large effect on Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, where there's Mm -hmm. tensions along those borders already. And so if you if you Mm -hmm. really start to see much more sizable numbers of refugees, I think you're going to see the neighbors which have largely remained on the outside of this conflict, you have not seen Ethiopia, Egypt, Mm -hmm. really playing a decisive role. They've done some things on the margins. But really, I think they've been very careful not to inflame the situation. Um Mm. I think that could be reversed. I think that could change if you if you start Mm. to see uh the humanitarian effects or even um the military effects. If you see people trying to use uh you know um uh foreign territory for basing or resupply or things Mm. like that I really think Mm. that um the region could become much more involved and there's a there's a real risk of that going forward. So um, I think EGAD uh, is not fit for purpose today. I think EGAD has, I think EGAD is broken as an institution. I think mm-hmm. that um, because Ethiopia has had the internal, you know, conflict that it has had and mm-hmm. has stepped mm-hmm. back from its own leadership role. I mean, let's not, re- let's not forget Sudan is the chairman of EGAD, right? I mean, it had been <laughs> the chairman of of the <laughs> conflict. So yeah. you have, um, you have, I think, a, a regional organization right now um, that has no obvious leader um, mm-hmm. that is been hollowed out and does not have, um, you know, a a, a strong organizational or bureaucratic structure to deal with this very complex conflict um, in not just in Sudan, but in the horn, in the horn more broadly. I mean, when you look mm-hmm. at all of that are going on within the EGAD region uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, the GERD uh, the Somaliland deal uh, yeah. recognition um, you know obviously the internal situation inside Somalia I mean all obviously then there's the Red Sea uh, you know instability that's going on so there's a lot going on that is putting stress on the EGAD member states that I don't think, uh the institution of egad is in a position right now to 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 deal with in any in any real meaningful way all of the member states are are are, um experiencing some uh instability both internally and regionally right now and i think that that has um that has really uh hollowed out what we what we can expect from uh from egad going forward
0: yeah well um this is it does seem that it's quite a little bit bleak, the future to that and the region. But, but uh Cameron, thank you for your very insightful uh, views and comments. We really do appreciate you know your honouring our and invitation and, and and coming here. Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. It's great to be on.
0: Thank you viewers and listeners uh, for tuning in today, uh, this week's episode. Uh, We've had an important guest, Cameron Hilton. I hope you enjoyed the insightful comments from Cameron about about South Sudan. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our platforms, uh, YouTube and Spotify for more updates and more episodes. Uh, Stay tuned and I'll see you uh, next week.